thank you so much for joining us today for our neuroscience grand rounds topic. And we're very excited to have Dr. Ruiz present on the updated 2023 subarachnoid, I should say aneurysmal subarachnoid guidelines. But um, we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruiz. Mm -hmm. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ruiz. I'm one of the neurointensivists. And uh, for Grand Rounds today, we're going to be discussing the uh, <clears throat> updated guidelines from the American Heart Association for uh, treatment of aneurysmal subarachnoids. Uh, so again, last guideline came, back, came out back in 2012, so it's been a while since we've had any updates. Um, I have no disclosures whatsoever. Um, as far as the objectives go, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, we're pretty much going to try and go through the algorithms of care for these patients through uh, different phases, uh, including from when they show up to the ER all the way to when they get discharged. Uh, I'm primarily going to focus on the new recommendations that are different from the 2012 guidelines. Uh, and then we're going to try and take a closer look at the pathophysiology of DCI and any new strategies that uh, the guidelines suggest are available. So when it comes to subarachnoid hemorrhages, you sort of have two different types of patient populations that you encounter in the ER. Uh, obviously, we have the folks that come in with uh, concerning complaints of headache and either have a focal neurological deficit or a disorder of consciousness. Uh, those folks tend to get head CTs, and for most cases, it's pretty straightforward to make the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, but the real challenge lies is for the folks that present with headaches that sound clinically concerning, you know, the clinical feature, features and the history, uh, but they have a non-focal neurological exam. And the reason why that matters is for subarachnoid patients, about 10 to 45 percent of them can show up with what's called sentinel hemorrhages, which is just, you know, small hemorrhages from aneurysm of rupture. And that's really where the first difference with the new guidelines come in, and that's the introduction of the Ottawa rule, as you can see on the uh, diagram on the screen. And essentially what it states is that if your patient lacks any of the characteristics that are listed on the table, you can be fairly certain that the headache is not due to an aneurysm of rupture. Uh, and actually the negative predictive value for that particular rule is 100%, so it could be potentially very useful. Aside from that, the six-hour dichotomy still exists uh, in the diagnostic tree, and what I mean by that is, you know, if the patient shows up within six hours of having had the concerning symptoms uh, and you do a non-contrast head CT that's interpreted by a neuroradiologist, and the guideline is very specific about that, it has to be a neuroradiologist, <clears throat> then that's generally considered a sufficient workup. Uh, on the other hand, if it's been over six hours since symptom onset uh, and the non-contrast head CT is negative, that's when it's uh, advised to pursue a lumbar puncture. Uh, and again, what we'd be looking for is xanthochromia, which, as you guys may remember, is essentially bilirubin within the cerebrospinal fluid. And the reason why that's there is breakdown of oxyhemoglobin after the RBCs lies. Uh, of note, xanthochromia does have a sensitivity and specificity of over 95% for both of them. Uh, so, you know, we rely on it heavily. Uh, something that was interesting about the new guidelines is they're sort of calling into question whether MRI imaging is actually useful, uh, and at least you know for us that are practicing in the neuro ICU, that's somewhat interesting in the sense that typically if the head CT is negative, that was one of our go-to recommendations in the past was to get a brain MRI uh, to see if there be you know blood within the fissures or somewhere else. Uh, but again, you know the guidelines are not advocating for or against it, but you know they seem to focus more on pursuing the lumbar puncture or you know more formal uh, vessel imaging. 
Uh, obviously, once you diagnose this arachnoid, whether that is by you know a positive head CT or, or xanthochromia, then it's advised to get a, some sort of vascular imaging, whether that's a CTA or a, a digital subtraction angiogram. And again, the main purpose of doing that is to figure out exactly how you're going to treat the aneurysmal lesion. Once a diagnosis is made, also, uh, which is common in her practice, is to try and stratify how bad the hemorrhage is. And that's where, you know, some of these composite scales come in. What we currently use are things that you, most of you guys are probably familiar with, are the uh, uh, Hunt and Hess, which helps us stratify mortality, the modified Fisher, which helps us, you know, figure out who's at higher risk for DCI, <clears throat> or the WFNS, which stands for the World Federation uh, Neurological Society score, uh, which has to do with mortality as well. Uh, but essentially, these new composite scales that are in the guidelines, the first one is the uh, grade. That's a combination of the Hunt and Hess as well as the WFNS. And it's supposed to tell you, you know, help you stratify for DCI. Uh, the hair score is composed of the Hunt and Hess, H, presence of IVH, as well as aneurysm bleeding, And that's supposed to help you figure out you know, stratify mortality. And then there's the SAHID score, which includes H, WFNS, Remorted hypertension, fissure grade, size and location of the aneurysm, as well as the method of repair. And it's supposed to help you figure out what the long-term outcomes are. However, you know, since most of those composite scales are made up of scores that we already use, it's sort of unclear as to how beneficial they are in terms of figuring out a patient's mortality and morbidity. Uh, and once the subarachnoid has been identified, there is certainly, you know, an advocation to transfer the patient to uh, you know, a facility that deals with subarachnoids in high volumes. Uh, the guideline doesn't really specify exactly what that number is for your institution to be considered that. Uh, but again, the point is that, you know, you have both the neuroendovascular as well as the neuro ICU services that are required to not only treat the aneurysm, but also do all the post-repair monitoring as well as treat DCI if it's present. Um, Otherwise, as one of the sort of more surprising new recommendations was the recommendation against antifibrinolytics, such as TXA. Uh, again, in the older days, we used to administer that with the thought that it helps stabilize the thrombus that form at the uh, rupture side of the aneurysm. Uh, but based on this trial, the ULTRA trial, uh, which was a prospective randomized controlled trial back in 2020, uh, with about a thousand patients, uh, they essentially figure out that there doesn't seem to be either a uh, difference in terms of the overall outcome. Uh, what you're looking at here is the MRS at six months, uh, but also you know they realize that there's necessarily not a difference in terms of you know or at least a statistically significant difference as to whether the aneurysm rebleeds. Uh, re also, interestingly enough, the uh, rate of thromboembolic complications didn't seem to differ between the two groups. And I mentioned that because when you administer TXA, that's one of the sort of main concerns that you know most folks have as far as that particular medication goes. Something else that was interesting is uh, in the older guidelines, we you know they call for targeting a systolic blood pressure less than 160 uh, before the aneurysm was repaired. And now the guideline doesn't really give you a number, but, you know, they sort of emphasize more trying to reduce the variability of the blood pressure uh, <clears throat> before the aneurysm is repaired. And the reason for that is all the compilation of data that they have suggested that's tied with worse mortality. 
I think part of the reason, or you know, at least what the sort of subtext uh, explained is the reason why they made that change is while the data suggests that less ruptures do happen when we make the pressure less than 160, the data is very heterogeneous. But also, you know, there's sort of this new thought that the blood pressure target really should be very patient dependent. And what I mean by that is if you have, you know, someone who comes in with a rupture, has a lot of cerebral edema or intracranial hypertension, what we do with the blood pressure can affect the cerebral perfusion pressure and the cerebral blood flow. So, you know, we should be cognizant of making sure that we're not altering the pressures in such a way that it could affect the patient negatively. In terms of the actual repair, uh, again, endovascular cooling remains the sort of standard of care, uh, and that applies to both anterior as well as posterior circulation aneurysms. That's based on, uh, based on data from the ISA trials as well as the BRAD study. Uh, there's a couple of caveats within the subtext of, of the recommendation, and that is that it is unclear whether uh, endovascular cooling truly offers a benefit for patients over 70 years old, <clears throat> but also it sort of calls to perhaps advocating for uh, clipping for patients that are under the age of 40 uh, whenever they show up with a rupture aneurysms. And the thought behind that is the rate of recurrence with clipping is less than when we use endovascular uh, coiling. Um, otherwise, there's also any recommendation to advocate for uh, potential ICH evacuation when patients present with an aneurysm of rupture and an ICH that's greater than 30 cc's. And obviously, you know, if you pursue that route, you, that, would be, that would imply that you'd be pursuing clipping of the aneurysm as well. Uh, what's kind of interesting is, you know, they said that we should strive for pursuing that for salvageable patients, uh, but it doesn't really, you know, say exactly what that means. So I guess, you know, it's very clinician dependent of whoever's seeing the patient at the time. Um, aside from that, flow diverters and coil assistant coiling, unlike the previous guideline, is not sort of deemed as this last ditch effort, even though, you know, we do recognize that it's associated with more complications and more rebleeding. Um, it is, you know, deemed as an appropriate method of treatment of the aneurysm, as long as that's what the endovascular experts deems is appropriate. Uh, in terms of the actual intraoperative management, there's really nothing much different from standard considerations. That includes administration of aprosmolar therapy if it's warranted, maintaining euglycemia, maintaining euthermia, <clears throat> treating postoperative nausea, postoperative pain. One thing that was kind of crazy, and I put it on the slide because it sounded crazy, was actually administering adenosine intraoperatively uh, if you're pursuing clipping, and particularly so if there's an intraoperative rupture uh, of the aneurysm. And lastly, compared to last, last time we had any guidelines, uh, the consideration for intraoperative hypothermia, you know, has sort of been, is no longer recommended, primarily because of what little data we have uh, doesn't really seem to have any morbidity or mortality uh, benefit. But, you know, I'm not sure that anyone was really doing that anyway. Once the aneurysm has been repaired, there's sort of a heavy emphasis on trying to use standardized protocols for a lot of the things that we do for these patients. Uh, that includes mechanical ventilation, and again, that's sort of targeted towards, uh, you know, a quoted rate of uh, acute, uh, a quoted rate of uh, acute lung injury for subarachnoid patients. That's about 20%. And again, the goal of that particular, you know, guideline is to try and get patients extubated as soon as we can, and try and prevent any, you know, complications, primarily VABs. 
um, for mechanical ventilation. There's a you know same push for a lot of different aspects. So for euglycemia, I guess you know the data suggests that if it's present within the first 72 hours after the aneurysm of rupture, it has a higher incidence of DCI. So again, that's why that push is there. As far as euthermia goes, we know that overall throughout the course of the subarachnoid, you know, both pre and post repair, uh, we know that you know fevers and higher temperatures are tied up with overall worse prognosis. <clears throat> However, you know, they, they're killing me with this. Uh, <clears throat> so where was I? Oh, yeah, so um, the guidelines, even though we know it's tied to worse outcomes, there's not really a specific number that we should target, if that makes sense. And I think a lot of that has to do with the definition of fever it tends to vary a lot, you know, from hospital to hospital, but also from the inpatient setting to the ICU setting. Um, there's also sort of a big focus on euvolemia. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, and not only with for subarachnoid hemorrhages, but for critical care in general, we know that both hypovolemia as well as hypervolemia can have a lot of you know complications, as you can see on the graph on the right-hand corner. Uh, so you know it's a matter of trying to find that optimal volume. What's tricky, particularly in the, in the ICU, is you know how do we protocolize that and how do we figure out who needs fluid and who doesn't. And so you know a lot of what the guideline talks about is using non-invasive monitoring to try and figure that out. And that can include a number of different methods, including indirect FIC, thermodilution, esophageal dopplers, or thoracic electrical bioimpedance. Uh, and again, the goal of all of those methods of monitoring is to you know, essentially figure out who would be a fluid responder versus not. I'm not going to delve too much into those, because honestly, going through all of those would be an entirely, like, could be an entire grand rounds. Uh, so I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, lastly, as far as nursing goes, you know, they, unlike the previous guideline, um, you know, they do want us to use nurses that have, you know, expertise in the neurology, uh, but also they're using validated scales to evaluate the patients. And, you know, the guidelines do recognize that they're probably the most important tool to help us recognize DCI for patients that are in the ICU, although it's unclear what the frequency of the assessment should be and how long they should go on while they're in the ICU. But again, you know, they're key for us to be able to uh, treat these patients appropriately. As far as prevention of DCI, again, nimodipid remains the only tried and proven agent, uh, but I'll say a little bit more about that when we get to the DCI portion. As far as monitoring for DCI, um, again, the guidelines suggest that TCD is a reasonable choice for DCI monitoring. Uh, and, you know, they quote the sensitivities and specificities and predictive values that you can see on the screen. A lot of that or that particular recommendation seems to be based on a um, meta-analysis that was published from the Journal of Neurosurgery back in 2016. I actually pulled the tables and that's what you're seeing on the screen. And, you know, what I would like to point out is a lot of the studies were not only fairly old, but also retrospective. And uh, their data was very, very heterogeneous, looking at the I-squared values for pretty much all of those. So while they, that definitely exists in the guideline, I would take that with a grain of salt, at least personally I do. Uh, but, you know, more so when we get to the DCI you know, portion of things, you may realize that TCD is monitored the wrong parameter altogether. 
otherwise, uh, there's a recognition for continuous EEG as a potential tool to monitor for DCI. That's particularly true on patients that don't have a good clinical exam for us to follow, which quite frankly, we see more often than not in the neuro ICU. Unfortunately, a lot of the parameters that are cited are part of what's called spectral EEG. And some of the, and you know, that's something that's necessarily widely available, it tends to be more in, you know, large beta academic centers. Uh, but, you know, things that they look at are things like the alpha delta power ratio, the alpha power variability. But interestingly, the one thing that seemed to have the highest predictive value were neuroepileptiform or interactal discharges. So feasibly, any center that has access to EEG monitoring could potentially do this and perhaps have a you know, reasonable amount of success making a diagnosis. With that being said, though, you know, it's unclear whether that type of monitoring has any mortality or morbidity benefit for the patients. Lastly, something else that's recognized as a potential tool is invasive monitoring, and that's essentially what's called microdialysis as well as brain tissue oxygen tension. That's when we insert you know, catheters in the actual cerebral tissue uh, to draw samples of different things like the pyruvate, uh, glucose, and other parameters. But you know, again, the sort of knock to that particular type of monitoring is, is not widely available. Again, we're talking you know, tertiary, big academic centers. Uh, the data that's behind it is not very well powered, so it's unclear how helpful it truly is. But more importantly, you know, I guess, at least as a neurointensivist, her concern has always been that it gives you data for a very specific area of the brain, but it may not really have, you know, reflect what's going on globally. Again, sort of going back to, you know, treating these patients in a protocolized fashion, uh, the same thing applies to EVDs. And then per the guideline that has to do with you know how they're placed, who maintains them, who accesses them, if we need CSF samples, things of that nature. Uh, I still recommend treating you know hydrocephalus as early as we can with CSF diversion if that's what seems appropriate. Uh, but you know there's really nothing new or groundbreaking there. Now the most controversial change is definitely going to be seizure prophylaxis. Uh, and so, you know, for the previous guideline, we used to, and this was also very center dependent, uh, but most patients, or pretty much all of them, would end up on some form of um, seizure prophylaxis. And how long it was continued, again, it was center dependent, but at least where I trained, uh, you know, it had to do with as to whether there was any structural defects or anything, you know, along those lines. The new guideline, though, calls for us to only administer seizure prophylaxis for what's deemed as high-risk patients, and those are patients that you know have the characteristics that you see on the screen, which are MCA aneurysms, intracerebral hemorrhages, hydrocephalus, cortical infarcts, where Hunton has greater than four. Um, also, interestingly, regardless of the presentation, whether that is a high-risk subarachnoid or whether the, pre the, pre the patient presented with seizures. They advocate for the course to not be any longer than seven days. And uh, I guess, you know, the reason behind that recommendation is um, the data is too heterogeneous to know if it actually has a mortality or morbidity benefit. But more importantly, it seems like it has no effect on the incidence of post-stroke epilepsy. Now, you know, whether people are going to adhere to this guideline or not, you know, I guess we'll have to, we'll, we'll remain to be seen, but, you know, that is, that's what it said. 
Now, as far as DCI, again, it's defined as a decrease in GCS by two points for at least one hour without an alternative diagnosis. From a more practical perspective, you know, at least in the neuro ICU, any subarachnoid that has a new focal deficit, you know, in my mind, has DCI until it's proven otherwise. Um, now, you know, DCI, if you guys take anything away from this presentation, is that DCI is not vasospasm. Those two terms are not equivalent. And vasospasm is most certainly not the reason why DCI happens. Uh, the reasons why we know that have to do a lot with what we call the conscious trials. Those were trials in which they were trying endothelial antagonists, and you'll, you'll understand what it is in just a little bit. Uh, but you know, essentially, we know that for subarachnoid patients, about 70% of them do have vasospasm at some course, you know, at some point during the course. But only 30 of them tend to develop DCI. More so, we know that therapies that are directed towards vasospasm specifically seem to know, have you know have no um, effect on the incidence of DCI itself. And also, vasospasm itself has never been attached or you know, is not associated with a poor prognosis in any of the data that we have available. So therefore, why my comment of you know, TCDs may be monitoring the wrong parameter altogether. As far as to what causes it, you know, it's complex and not well understood, uh, but you know, we think it's definitely a multifactorial process uh, that has to do primarily with vascular dysfunction and subsequent uh, impairment of autoregulation inflammation and cortical spreading depression. The lymphatic dysfunction is more theoretical, but um, we'll go through the other three. So again, we think what happens is when the aneurysm ruptures, there's this sort of sudden rise in intracranial pressure. As it happens, the endothelium gets, gets damaged and the blood barrier gets disrupted. And when the endothelium gets damaged, you get exposed to a subendothelial collagen. And what that does is it downregulates a protein that's called ADAMS13, that's a metalloproteinase, that it's responsible for inhibiting other proteins, particularly that little guy that you see there, P-selectin. Um, so essentially, once the rupture happens and you have exposure you know, of the subendothelium, it creates an inflammatory response. And as the inflammatory response sort of begins and propagates, it tends to create a prothrombotic uh, state, which is what you see on the picture on the left. And again, P-selectins and the downregulation of ADAMS13 seems to be key, as P-selectin is a you know, key molecule in the adhesion of monocytes and other inflammatory cells to the endothelial wall to propagate the inflammatory process. And interestingly, at least in you know, most of the animal data, um, P-selectin does seem to be overexpressed in areas of DCI uh, for, you know, dead tissue that's analyzed, obviously, for animal data. As far as the autoregulatory dysfunction, we think it also has to do with endothelial damage. And again, you know, once the endothelium is damaged, we think the uh, endothelium one pathway is activated, and that's what you see on the right. But, you know, just to make a long story short, it's a G-coupled protein pathway that leads to, you know, unintended vasoconstriction. Now, something else that happens that's not in the slides is once you have red blood cells go into the subarachnoid space and the cerebrospinal fluid, obviously they end up lysing. And as they lyse, they uh, release, um, as the red blood cells lyse, they release hemoglobin, which seems to also play a significant part in all of this. So we know that hemoglobin can stimulate some of the monocytes and neutrophils that are participating in the inflammatory response that we talked about. 
Uh, we know that it can also activate the TLR4 pathway in microglia. And what that can do is it can actually lead uh, to neuronal apoptosis. But more importantly, you know, while it's there, it sequesters uh, nitric oxide. And the reason for that is the amount of haptoglobin in your CSF, which is a molecule that usually captures, you know, hemoglobin is very low compared to your serum. Uh, so you have a situation in which not only the available nitric oxide is being sequestered, uh, but also the sort of mechanism gets uncoupled because of all the reactive oxygen species and everything else that's in the milieu. And then that brings us to cortical spreading depressions, which is honestly kind of the more interesting, uh, I guess, theory of why DCI happens. So cortical spreading depressions are not necessarily new in neurology. They've been associated in other conditions, particularly migraine headaches. And the reason why that's relevant is we know that the fact that they happen doesn't necessarily mean that there's cerebral ischemia, just like in migraines. Uh, we know that you know also when you have an ischemic stroke with penumbra and core, we think uh, the spreading depressions are responsible for the extension of the core and the loss of penumbra. But essentially what they are is a loss of transmembrane potential because the ATPase that you know, maintains the gradient of sodium and potassium you know, bet between the inside and the outside of your cells becomes dysfunctional from extracellular potassium and glutamate, uh, which are all you know, sort of result of the, <clears throat> I guess, you know, death of neurons. Uh, and again, they're not exclusive to subarachnoid hemorrhages. And when they happen, the appropriate response should be that you have a transient period of hypoperfusion, which is followed by hyperemia or a state of hyperfusion, and then eventually oligemia. And that's you know sort of the appropriate range response to you know sort of uh, compensate for them. What happens in subarachnoid hemorrhages, though, is you know when the spreading depression gets triggered, and we usually think the trigger is you know, a metabolic demand that is not being met, <clears throat> that's regardless of whether the cell is you know, at its basal metabolic rate or if it's hypermetabolic. Uh, but essentially you have, you know, when the spreading depression triggers, you have this sort of prolongation of the hyperperfusion phase, and that's what you're seeing on the slide. This slide that I, I pulled this from, uh, it's animal data, it's a rat brain. Uh, but again, what I wanted to point out is your attention to A and D. So in A, again, you can see once the spreading depression gets triggered, you have sort of a sharp decrement in CBF, but there's no recovery. While the you know amount of potassium keeps rising, and you know there's electrical, essentially electrical silence uh, because the gradient is lost, and that's sort of nicely seen better in box D. That's called a Lasker scan. Uh, that's a type of scan in which they use some of the photo, I guess, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to tell you the right word, but essentially they play around with how RBCs react to light and they're able to create a picture from it. But again, the point being that you can tell once the um, cortical spreading depression is triggered, you know, you have roughly 120 seconds of hyperperfusion. And finally, after roughly three minutes, you finally have the hyperemia, which should be, you know, sort of the more immediate response. Now, the reason why that happens is subarachnoid hemorrhages is because of the things we just discussed, and that is, you know, you have failure of autoregulation from the things that I discussed previously, and also there's some thought that potassium, the potassium itself, that, you know, may be sort of triggering a lot of these problems, may have a vasoconstrictive effect. Now, as to why they spread, we think that NMDA receptors may be 
uh, involved in not only the clustering of this particular phenomenon, but also the spread from neuron to neuron. Uh, but you know, there's been trials with ketamine, which is an NMDA receptor antagonist that haven't been positive in terms of you know helping with morbidity or mortality. Interestingly, though, there's some loose data out there that nimodipine may actually target this particular receptor, and that may be the reason why it's helpful, as opposed to anything else that we've tried before. As far as treatment, there's unfortunately not a lot that's new. Uh, again, in terms of prevention, nimodipine remains the only tried and proven agent. Um, again, it's been compared to other calcium channel blockers over time, and it remains the superior option. Uh, I still recommend it to give it by mouth, uh, primarily because when it's given intravenously, uh, it has tends to have more side effects of hypotension, which you know if we have someone in DCI, that's not something you would want. Uh, but can also have uh, complications with pulmonary edema, which can complicate some of the fluid management uh, for these patients in the ICU. Uh, but essentially, you know, while you're doing the monitoring, if you encounter someone who you think has DCI, then you know the standard of care remains to do hemodynamic augmentation. Um, compared to previous guidelines, uh, they actually emphasize that levofed should be the agent of choice uh, for us to try and achieve the hemodynamic augmentation. Uh, there's some promising data with milbrinone, both independently as well as an additive to levofed. Um, and we're not exactly sure how, you know, how exactly it helps DCI, uh, but we know that it augments cardiac output and also can cause some degree of vasodilation uh, because of the receptor that it targets in the blood vessels. And again, a lot of the data that's been published for it is most, mostly focused on clinical outcomes rather than vasospasm, which is why you know, I think it's relatively promising. Once you try that, you know, if the symptoms that you're worried are DCI are not getting better, then, you know, the recommendation to still try and um, pursue endovascular therapy is still appropriate. Uh, and that would be to get either balloon angioplasty or intraarterial calcium channel blockers. Uh, it's uncertain exactly what should be the trigger point for us to, you know, seek that therapy. And that's something that was heavily emphasized in the guidelines. Uh, but, you know, even though it's heavily emphasized, there's really not a good answer for it. Uh, other things that were mentioned is neuronal ganglia blocking. Uh, so as the name implies, you know, this ganglia blocking trying to sort of dampen the sympathetic response during subarachnoid hemorrhages. Uh, but again, the data for that is not only scars, but also, you know, all the studies that exist seem to be looking at vasospasm rather than a clinical outcome. Uh, as far as intrathecal thrombolytics, that's also, it's also being studied. And again, the thought is that if you're able to remove some of the hemoglobin, which again, we thought may be responsible for, you know, some of the inflammatory process, as well as the uh, auto, uh, vascular auto dis or dysregulation uh, of your autoregulatory mechanisms, uh, then, you know, that may be helpful as well. But again, all the papers that are available look at vasospasm rather than a clinical outcome. And then lastly, there's intrathecal vasodilators, which sometimes we practice in our own ICU. That's your intrathecal nicardipine. Um, and again, you know, there's not a lot of data. And a lot of the papers that exist out there, again, look at vasospasm more so than an actual clinical outcome. So, you know, it remains unclear as to how helpful they truly are.
Uh, one last thing that I wanted to mention is I told you guys about the conscious trials before. Again, those were essentially using this medication called clasacentin, which is an endothelium one antagonist. So if you guys go back to this slide, it would be something that would inhibit, you know, the pathway on the right. Uh, so again, the conscious trials essentially, there were three of them, and the last one, or you know, the first one, we thought that it was helpful, and the second one, we thought that it was maybe helpful, but we hadn't administered enough medication, and then the third one was really promising as far as clinical outcomes and you know, uh, decreasing the incidence of DCI. So they came up with a, what was called the REACT trial. It was a randomized control study with about 500 patients. But unfortunately, even though the data hasn't been published, it turned out to be negative. So even from that perspective, we don't have anything new. And again, this was just, uh, I think this slide should have been, I flipped my slides essentially. This was to show you again that uh, the graph that you're seeing on the right, that's for one of the papers uh, for which they were administering um, the um, uh, vasodilators. And again, you can see that they're looking at mean flow velocities rather than a clinical outcome. As far as post-hospital discharge, again, just like there's a push for stroke to sort of have a more multidisciplinary you know, approach to how we try to help these patients where they get discharged from the hospital, it's the same for, for subarachnoids. Uh, so you know, that includes social work, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, all of these folks. Uh, there is, though, a sort of higher emphasis on screening for cognitive dysfunction and the reason for that is about 40 to 70% of these patients who you know, leave the hospital without any discernible neurological deficit uh, can have you know, cognitive issues. And that applies to uh, different realms, including memory, uh, executive processes, as well as attention. Um, and I guess in order to accomplish that screening, they advocate for us to use the MOCA uh, tool rather than some of the other tools that are available out there. Uh, and otherwise, you know, there's sort of run-of-the-mill stuff, which is not new, uh, which is try and treat depression and potentially use neurostimulants if we think they're warranted, even though the data, the data for them as to whether they help or not is very heterogeneous and overall unclear whether they actually help or not. Okay, thank you.